Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 207 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Emma Rose all about using settings in your romance plots and subplots. But first to last week's question, which was, what are you struggling with in your author business right now? Author Lena M. Johnson said, I'm on the verge of releasing my first book, so I'm struggling with what groundwork I need to set up and what business actions I need to take so that when I'm ready to scale up, everything is ready to go. NL Blandford said, I'm struggling with focus and creating a routine now that I've moved across the country. There's so much I want to do. I have two whips in progress, which is unlike me. A book launch coming up I should really focus on, and yet I'm looking at the long term and trying to determine if I go into non-fiction, editing and or coaching. I want to do all of the things now. My activator hears you and it feels your pain. And so in the theme of settings, I thought this week I would ask you, where do you write? And if you want to uh, tag me in a story on Instagram, that would be great. I I love a good nosy at people's offices. So yeah, please do uh, let me know, where do you write? The book recommendation of the week this week is a book I have not read yet, but I have ordered it and it should be arriving tomorrow. So one of my long-term friends is Icy Sedgwick and Icy has got a PhD in like horror movie. Uh, She also runs the uh, fabulous Folklore podcast. She also blogs on Folklore as well and has done for donkeys. And I have always, always begged and pleaded with her to write a Folklore book, a non-fiction book for writers. Now, this isn't quite what she's done, but uh, close enough, close enough. So I am so excited, especially because of the book's title, which is Rebel Folklore. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm so excited. I can't wait for this to turn up tomorrow. So the title is Rebel Folklore, Empowering Tales of Spirits, Witches, and Other Misfits from Anansi to Baba Yaga. I've probably butchered all of the pronunciations of all of those. I think it's Baba Yaga. I can't remember. I know that they call uh, John Wick that in one of the John Wick movies. Anywho, This is a beautiful coffee table book. It's illustrated, it's hardback, um, and all of the uh, rebellious folklore tales are super inspiring for writers. I've had a look at the look inside and I I literally can't wait to get my hands on it. I'm so proud of IC, so I really recommend that you all go um, and order your copy and I will be dragging IC onto the podcast to talk about how to use uh, folklore tales to inspire your writing. So anyway, I will leave a link to that in the show notes. So in personal news and updates then, I have to say, (laughs) the halo and glow from holiday has gone. (laughs) They say it only lasts three weeks. I'm not sure it lasted that long. I'll be honest. No. So I did finish the book. I finished book three uh, on Saturday. It is now Wednesday, the 6th of September. So I must have finished it on... (laughs) second I think Uh, and I have to hand it to the editor on the 11th so I won't lie (laughs) means I've got to edit the whole book in a week I'm not sure if I can do that I'm going to try very hard one thing that I'm really pleased about 
this time is that I was limiting myself, apart from the final day, I was limit, limiting myself to, to 5,000 words. So if in a day I did 5,000 words, uh, then I would stop and I would do something else. And that really kind of kept pennies in the machine, which means that I was more able to do things like brainstorm if I got stuck instead of just trying to like fucking juggernaut my way through the book. Um, And as a result, I've been very surprised that the book is a lot cleaner than I thought. And the story is pretty fucking good, if I'm honest. (laughs) I am. I'm really quite impressed with myself. And I'm nervous laughing because I don't want to sound African, but um, I'm really pleased with this book. I'm like, I'm loving it. And there's some corking lines. It is two of the most petty characters I've ever written. And they are arguing all of the time. And I just, I actually love it. Um, So yeah, I'm like delighted with reading it back. And I don't think I have ever said that. I'm pretty sure I've been honest about how much I fucking hate editing. And and I'm actually enjoying it because I'm enjoying the story. And of course, my strengths coach completely set me up because that was the point of limiting my to 5,000 words a day is that I would end up writing a cleaner story. So, (laughs) guess who had to eat humble pie in my uh, strengths coaching session? Me. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so yeah, I'm actually delightfully excited to start talking about this one. I have like 60,000 words to get edited before Monday. And I'm really hoping (laughs) that I can do that, Uh, especially because I'm going to London for a masterclass event, uh, uh, like on mailing lists. And I just, I really don't want it to spill over because I've got other things I need to do next week, including the next Patreon masterclass, which is on romance as a subplot. So I do need to get the book edited and done and handed off to my editor by Sunday, end of Sunday. So it does mean I'm going to do the thing I said I wouldn't, which is to work all weekend. However, after I think it's about Wednesday, so Thursday onwards next week, things will calm down. And I've sort of built in quite a bit of breathing room for the rest of September, (laughs) other than all the marketing. (laughs) Why? Why? What is wrong with me? Why can't I? Like, I don't even like rest, but like, not to be nuclear all the time, maybe so I can take a breath once or twice a day would be great. (laughs) I say that and then I get deeply miserable whenever I'm not super busy. But even I can recognise that uh, this was a bit of a (laughs) scheduling clusterfuck. (laughs) I've been quite stressed today, Uh, but I will do better. I will do better after this week, slash 10 days. Anyway, I have now planned out the rest of my year and I am so excited because I'm going to be doing two courses in October, two non-fiction courses. And so one of them is a rebrand of all of the villains content. It is going to be three huge modules or three kind of like subtopics within um, the course. And then I'm going to be doing 
I'm, I'm breaking with tradition and I'm doing a know your market course. I'm going to use all of my competition prowess to help you understand your market, to help you understand how to find your comps, how to um, know what you should be reading. And then we're going to be looking at the craft side of knowing your market. So how do you know how to write to market? And so, yeah, I will be developing both of those. Well, actually, to tell you the truth, I've already started developing them uh, behind the scenes, but I'm super excited. So I will talk to you more about that when we get to October. Okay, so Rebel of the Week this week is Kirsten Lillis. What a cool name. Kirsten says, I'm writing in with a small rebellion, which turned out to be a big deal for me in my writing life. My husband and I moved to a new state in 2016 for his job, and it took me almost a full year of applying and interviewing to land a job offer of my own. When I finally did get that magical invitation, it turned out I actually had two very different jobs to choose between. This was a corporate video editor, which I studied to become in college and worked as for a few years after graduation. That job came with a decent salary and job security. The second was to work part-time for a startup company helping the CEO publish a children's book he had already written. The pay was low and the only security was the potential for future projects if he liked my work and could find something for me to do. I felt crazy for even considering this one. However, I'd always wanted to write and publish books of my own. Like any good neurotic type A personality, I made a pro and cons list. On paper, the full-time job video um, video job made the most sense, but I couldn't ignore the tiny voice in my head whispering, but you could get paid to learn how to publish books. With the support of my husband, I took the part-time job. For the first few months, I spent a few hours a day learning how to self-publish and eventually got my boss's book into the local library available uh, for order in print and even got into a little marketing. He was ecstatic. My job at the company grew to include many more, not publishing related, but some marketing related responsibilities over the year and a half I worked there. And when I said goodbye in 2018 in preparation of becoming a stay at home mum, I had all the skills and confidence I needed in order to publish my own books. My first YA fantasy novel went live three and a half weeks before my first daughter was born in 2019. My second went live two days before my second daughter was born in May 2022. I'm on track to get the third book out in early 2024. No, impen <laughs> no impending babies this time. I don't know where I would be in my writing journey today if I hadn't followed my gut back then. I'm a cautious person by nature, but sometimes taking that leap really pays off. Here's to the rebellions, big, small, and all the joy they bring us. Oh, yes, Duchess, do you agree? Yeah. Um, I love that. I love, love, love this story. Thank you so, so much. A beautiful journey you've been on and what an incredible and brave rebellion. And I love that it brought you joy as well. We are incredibly low on rebel stories. Look, even Duchess wants you to, to send one in. So if you have a rebellion, whether it's something big, something small, somebody you know did it, maybe a brother or a sister or a sibling or a parent or caregiver or your boss at work or a cousin or a friend or a pet, please do send in your stories. It can be any kind of rebellion. As I've said, something big, something small, or something in between. You can email your rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. Please don't sit on them. We do need them. 
Hello and welcome to Shannon Harris. An enormous thank you for joining me. And of course, an equally enormous thank you to all of my existing patrons. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content, you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. That's enough from me. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Emma Rose. Emma is a developmental editor and writing coach who's passionate about romance, women's fiction, and chiclet. Give her books that celebrate the bonds between humans and individuals embracing their power. These genres are her absolute obsession. She devours them like a kid at the candy store. Like every good heroine, Emma has a secret past as a physics researcher. Nowadays, she is a fictionary certified story coach and helps writers craft their own heartfelt heartfelt tales, both in English and French. She lives in Switzerland with her amazing partner, where she dabbles in romance writing herself. Hello and welcome. Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm super happy to be here. You are most welcome. So talk to me about the fact that you do French and English. So what language are you writing your own romances in? So I'm French, but I write my own romances in English because I've been reading romances in English since I was like 15. And like, I I don't read romances in French anymore. They, They sound a bit strange. <laughs> this blows my mind. Every time I have anybody on the show who's bilingual, I literally just wish I could be inside their brain because it fascinates me how like our brain has the ability to to literally be like basically native in two different languages. It just like what what language do you dream in? So dreams I have no idea honestly. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't really, I don't really realize, but it's also like, um, at this point, I, I think both in English and in French. So I guess I probably dream also in both of these languages with my partner. We also like, when we're talking about work, we usually switch to English anyways, because it's just, it's just easier. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my goodness. So what language is your partner's first language? French as well. Yeah, we, we both have French and English. He has German too. I, I have only the basics of German, like food, but yeah. not much more than that. Oh, wow. Oh my goodness me. I mean, it literally blows my mind that, that, that this is how it works. I think this is fun. This is amazing. So do you read in French at all anymore? Uh, yeah, I do sometimes, uh, but it's not the, like, it's not my most, uh, it's not my preferred uh, language to to read in uh, by now. Also, because a lot of authors that I'm following are like in English, so then I, I read in their language. I don't read the translation. Have you ever read a book in English and then read it in French? No, that I haven't done. I would be so fascinated to see, like, for somebody who does speak both languages so well, like what. Like, does the book feel the same? Like, does it have a different, like, emotion in it? Or like, like you know, because language is, like, the rhythm and feeling of language is emotional. So, like, I would be fascinated to know, like, what, even if it was just like, a, I might have to, like, email you and, like, get you to do this just, like, <laughs> offline, just for my geeky nerdy stuff. Well, I, <laughs> I might actually do it in the sense that um, I've, I've picked up a few books that I really liked as a, like, 
uh, growing up and that were like um, um, in French, uh, that are translations. And now I would read them in English if I were to, or at least I would present part of the book in English if I were to um, use them, for example, on social media to like kind of do analysis of the book. So I, I might actually do that. The other thing that I would be interested in is if the effect is the same, if the book started in English and went to French, or if the book started in French and went to English, like, I think that would be an interesting, like, comparison as well. I mean, this is, that's probably like a PhD right there. <laughs> but uh, what's your PhD in as well? I don't know if you're allowed to talk about that. Like, because your, your PhD is physics, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it, it was uh, on theoretical physics. So I basically took uh, data from CERN. Uh, the, so the Large Hadron Collider that basically smashing, uh, smashes proton together. Uh, I took data from there to kind of constrain models of new physics. Um, so interesting. I love it. But that is not what we're here to talk about. So I will rein no. my learner in and stop myself <laughs> drilling you with questions. We can talk physics. about it later if you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I know I do want. I do want. Okay. Tell everyone. Oh, my God. I haven't even asked you the first question. <laughs> Tell everyone a little bit about you and your journey. Like, how did you get to where you are today? How on earth did you go from physics to romance writing? Like, tell me that story. Well, uh, it started very much with romance reading, right? Uh, like, at the very young age, like most romance reader, except Sasha, from what I understand. <laughs> and um, so I came to writing fiction a bit later, so in 20. 2019 towards the end of my master I was like I I want something else I have like stories inside my head I would like to to write them so as a very good learner and input I then like went and listened to all of the podcasts and all of the YouTube and read all of the blogs and the books um and then I joined author communities so like the rebel author podcast uh slack is uh, amazing uh and I also joined like activated authors with Dan which was also really helpful and yeah, so all this basically happened while I was doing my PhD and I was like writing fiction a bit on the side and learning a lot. <laughs> um, and then at some point I decided to focus also on nonfiction because I, I was doing a PhD and wanting to help PhDs. Um, and when I reached the end uh, of my PhD, I realized research wasn't really for me. And then I was like, okay, but what can I do <laughs> if I'm not doing research? And I decided to uh, give this a try of saying, okay, I'm going to try and help writers. This is one of the things that I do. I also do like workshops for PhD students also. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy so far. I'm helping people on a daily basis, which is like really something that makes me happy. Oh, I love that. And also I can, for listeners, obviously they won't be able to see your face, but I can just see you beaming at, with joy over being able to help people. So that's so lovely to see. Do you think, um, so have you ever read anything by Ali Hazelwood? Um, so Ali, I can't, yeah, add, yes. you have. She She's yeah. the lady who yeah. blends kind of like nerdy, geeky science yeah. people with yeah, yeah, yeah. romance do you think you'll ever yes. be able to weave in some of like your studies or like academic background like into your stories or do you think do you think you're drawing a line between the two um I'm I'm not 
drawing a line. It's it's not exactly the type of stories that is brimming inside my head right now, uh, but I'm not drawing a line. It might it might uh, lend itself at some point to to a story. Um, also, like what I'm thinking about right now is college romance. So like there's a okay. bit of this college experience inside with Dean probably. Oh, I love it. I love it. I think I think that what Ali's done is fascinating. I love when because we get, yeah. you know, obviously like a lot of romances are follow certain parameters, but when somebody does bring like a new insight or a new kind of like, you know, area of knowledge or whatever, clearly my learner loves it. <laughs> so I'm always like, oh, new style of story. Anyway, right. We are here to talk about settings and romance. So let's dive into that topic and would you start by telling me why is setting important to a romance or a romantic subplot so um first of all there are 10 setting elements just like as a uh, as a starter so that people know what we're talking about um these elements are location timing of your scene the five senses that your pov character experiences the world with um objects uh, weather and emotional impact of the setting. So all of these are important to stories in general, but they're especially important to romance in particular, um, because romance is this um, like as this particularity that uh, the subgenre of romance actually uh, actually informs uh, the the type of settings that you will have very 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 often, if not always. So the subgenre or niche basically determines a, a bit your novel location and like more than that informs the scene location. Um, so as an example, for example, if you're writing small town cowboy romance, you will need some kind of small town shops, you will need a ranch, you will need horses, uh, you will need the whole shebang. And the the, I, the idea behind this is that you're when you have a specific subgenre, you're basically building reader expectations. So you have to meet those expectations with your settings. And so that's a, a very important part of, of writing romance. Um, but more than that, you have to meet expectations and also exceed them uh, with your setting. And one of the things, uh, like one example that is very good for that is actually your book, Sasha. I think it's a very <laughs> good example of uh, of meeting and exceeding uh, reader expectations in terms of uh, subgenre fit and, and, um, and settings, because um, you've built a world that is you need a word that is fantasy romance, okay? So you need fantasy, uh, and so you have magical buildings that, like, um, and the magic from the people comes from the building through tattoos, etc. So you have this uh, magic built in uh, into your romance, but it's also a type of magic that is rarely seen. So it like it creates a whole new thing for the reader to explore, and that's uh, going beyond the expectations, and that's very good. Oh, thank you. I funny enough, lots of people uh, start with character and they're then they build the setting around the characters. And I know it's con mm -hmm. and like that. I would say or they start with plot. Like usually people mm -hmm. fall into one or two of that one. Either what are words this morning? Either one of those two camps. I don't. I start with setting mm -hmm. and, and the characters come out of the setting. Like I have to know where people are and uh, because it's it's like otherwise it's like acting on a blank stage and I can't I can't like I don't know how to yeah so anyway usually I will get the spark of an idea from a setting or a location 
and then the characters kind of form in and of themselves. Like, I suppose it's two separate activities for me, but the setting, like, I'm so visual that if I can't mm-hmm. see the scene, I can't write the scene. And so I, yeah, I love setting as a as a topic and as a thing. And funny enough, I'm like world building the next series at the moment. And like, uh-huh. I'm like going full hog on the, like, taking that mansion and 10xing it like Uh for the next series so I'm super excited so I have to see what you think about that (laughs) okay (laughs) how can writers use setting to their advantage in a romantic like subplot or in a romance story yeah so the most important thing about setting especially in romance is that your setting have to impact the character's emotional state otherwise you're really not using them to their full capacity uh, and emotional impact is super, super important in romance because it's essentially the, the heart of the genre is like you need people to catch feelings for each other. So you need emotions. Um, and so the the question then becomes, how do we create emotional impact from our settings? Like wh- what is the, the secret sauce to do that? And so by secret sauce uh, that people usually call a trope, but I don't think it's a trope. I think it's the backbone of romance and it's forced or close proximity. People cannot catch feelings if they are not like close together, like time and time again. And so this this goes back to a romance fundamental, which is your characters have to spend time together, but they might not want to because it's uncomfortable, because they don't like the other character, because many, many reasons. Uh, And so this is where forced proximity comes in. And you can use all of the setting elements as for example, location, timing, senses, objects, weather, all of them to create uh, forced proximity, which will in turn uh, create emotional impact uh, of the setting. Um, so a few examples, just to like give more, more concrete things. Um, location, uh, if you want to use a location to create forced proximity, you have to think tiny spaces, only one bed, only one horse, only one tent, whatever you prefer. Um, in terms of timing, uh, you can use, for example, the social conventions of the of the timing that you're using. For example, in, in historical romance, uh, authors use marriage of convenience a lot because that's something that goes with the social conventions of the time. Uh, in terms of the senses, you can have accidental touch. That's a, a very nice one to create first proximity when the characters are not really ready for that touch. Especially in um, enemies to in lovers. Of, yes, yes, yes. Uh, and uh, in terms of objects, I really, really like shackles. Please, writers, if you're like listening to me, I love when you shackle your your main characters together. Like, I need more of it. I haven't seen enough of it. I'm, I'm really as in like handcuffs. Please do that more often. Yes. So one <laughs> historical romance did this amazingly. Like they had. Um, and cuffs, I think, around their feet for almost a whole novel, and they oh couldn't God. get it off. Like <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, it's a it's a delicious thing uh, to use, and I don't see it used often enough. And for weather, for example, if your two characters are in a very cold environment and there is hypothermia, then they have to be close together to like keep each other warm, sometimes without clothes. So that's a very delicious one as well. Um, and you will see that all of these uh, setting elements for um, for forced proximity also create great tension and conflict in your romance and romantic subplot. So that's a, a very important, um, a very important aspect as well. 
Yeah, yeah, I love that. You have literally like sparked my brain off. Like, oh, how can I get handcuffs into my next story? <laughs> I love it. Handcuffs are amazing. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Let's not open that can of worms any further. Um, <laughs> the um, now, now, where is my brain gone? Uh, what was I trying to say? Forced proximity. Yeah, I think you're so right about it being the backbone of romance, even if it's not like used in the context of the trope as such it is still a necessary requirement to have the characters in some form of close proximity in order for them to interact because without that dialogue without that you know on-page emotional kind of yeah back and forth there is no developing romance so yeah I absolutely love that what are some like common pitfalls that writers like fall into or how should they avoid them when trying to incorporate a good setting into their romance novel? Well, the the most common pitfall that I see is just not considering setting at all. And like just thinking of it as a, some kind of inconsequential backdrop, uh, whereas it's actually a very, very important part of your storytelling um, and if you're not thinking about setting intentionally, uh, the the risk that you have is, of course, not making the right choices, but also uh, settling on cliches, which mm. then makes your romance like feel a bit overdone. Um, and essentially, when when you're not considering setting, you're missing a whole dimension to your story. And this dimension, the setting dimension is separate from plot and character, but it can enhance them. So it can help complexify the plot. We've seen that it can help add tension and conflict. And in terms of characters, it can also help you uh, view the characters differently. So when and where the story takes place actually informs who your character are, what they feel comfortable with, what they value. It's really like important characterization work that you're not doing and that you're missing if you're not taking the setting into account. Yeah, I think lots of people who like write contemporary uh, settings forget that mm -hmm. you still actually have to world build because otherwise yeah. you're in a white room. Like your whole novel yeah. is set in a white room. And I think it's really yeah. easy to forget that, um, you know, it, and it's much obviously much easier for fantasy writers or science fiction writers to remember it because the setting is an integral part of like the genre. But whereas, you mm. know, when it's a more contemporary setting, I think you do have more ability to take some things for granted. Like you don't have to describe mm. a car. Everyone knows what a car is like, things like that. But um the way that I always think about it is if there is something that isn't uh, like a given. So, for example, if the car is a 1940s, like first edition Ford car with like no hard top and mm -hmm. a crank on the front end, nobody's going to assume that. So if it's something that people assume, you don't necessarily have to describe it. If it's something that is other than like the norm, mm -hmm. then it needs describing, you know? So, I mean, that's a very sweeping generalization, but that's a kind of a good, like, you know, guide for what does and doesn't need describing, I suppose. And and also that car will lead to characterization because who is the freaking character that is yes. driving the car? Like, <laughs> I want to know. Yeah, it, yeah. it really tells you about, about them. 
Yeah, especially in a 2020s set contemporary novel. Who who's driving a 1940s car? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've probably I'm probably going to get people emailing me and go those fours actually were developed in 19 whatever. I'm like, yeah, I don't. You know, I was just making it up. I was just making it up, everyone. Um, <laughs> definition of my day job: make shit up all day long. Anyway, how does the pacing of a romance subplot differ from when it's the main plot? And how can writers kind of balance these two narrative threads effectively? So what I usually find is that the pacing of a romance subplot is um, slower than the pacing of a romance as a main plot. Uh, And the reason for that is that when romance is the main plot, it's the main focus of the story. So every scene should contribute in one way or another to like progressing or regressing the relationship. Um, But when it's a subplot, the the main plot takes precedence. And so um, you you have fewer romantic scenes and they are further uh, between. And what what happens is that uh, if you have fewer scenes, it's harder to build a, a realistic relationship. Right, you you do need time to build a relationship, so you can make the scene more intense to try and like squeeze that time up. But still, so what often happens is that um, uh, the romance subplot will stretch over several books uh, in the series uh, for writers who have romance as a subplot, and so then you get more scenes to evolve the 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 romantic subplot. It just doesn't have to be crammed all into one book. Um, and then in terms of balancing the threads, I think this is a really hard question because uh, it really depends on where you are on the scale of writing romance uh, with some kind of other subplot or writing another main thread with like romance as a subplot. It's it's essentially a, a scale and where you sit on that scale with, well, like determine whether your book is actually balanced or not. Some writers are really writing smack bang in the middle uh, these days. And so it's really the, the the question that I have there would be, what is your intention as an author? Do you know what is your intention, where you intend to land on that scale? And then like in terms of data, like do your scenes, the number of romantic scenes compared to the number of scenes that are solidly main main thread that is not romance, where, where does that land? And is that um, reflective of, of your intention? Yeah, and I think that piece in particular is very important when you then start to market the book because if you get the disconnect between how you've marketed the book and then what readers experience is you're going to have a problem like so that is the point at which you definitely need to know that and you need you need to market it correctly so I think that's really wise advice are there any do you have any tips for making like a subplot enhance the main plot rather than distracting it so like yeah how can a romance subplot enhance the main plot rather than yeah like take take away from it because for someone like me I just focus on the romance (laughs) yes (laughs) but then you have other subplots below that that also enhance the romance plot so like it's it's just the reverse but the the main idea behind this is that um the main plot is the focus of your story uh, and it's actually exemplified by the main story goal that your uh, protagonist has. Um, and so for a genre like romance, the main story goal is about uh, connecting with another person. For a genre like mystery, it's about solving a crime. For fantasy, it's about defeating the bad guys. And so the main story goal is the main focus of the story. And there should be movement towards or away from the main story goal in every single scene. 
no matter if it's just a main story like scene or if it's a romantic scene, there should still be movement towards the main plot in all of the scenes. Um, I'm going to take an example uh, that most people know, which is Hunger Games. So it's a dystopian novel with a romantic subplot. And in that novel, every scene moves Katniss closer or away from her main story goal, which is to win the Hunger Games. Even the romantic scene. So in the romantic scene, there's an additional layer where she also connects or move away from Pita, who is the love interest. Um, but these uh, also contribute to her goal of winning the Hunger Games. So for example, at the beginning, uh, she moves away from Pita right when she's uh, gotten into the arena because he's allied himself with other tributes and she's not happy with that. But that also has an impact, not only in, in a negative impact on the relationship, but also a negative impact on her capacity to win the game because she doesn't have an ally anymore. And she makes exactly the reverse decision towards the end where she saves him, tends to his injury, eventually kisses him. And all of these are progression of the romance uh, subplot, but they are also progression in terms of uh, her capacity to win the game. Because at that point, the reason she makes those choices is that they can win together because they are, they are um, uh, tributes from the same district. So that's a, a good example of how romance can enhance the plot instead of distract from it. Yeah, and what I love about that example in particular is that very end scene, spoiler alert, um, the, the reason the, what works yes. so well is that the subplot of romance then entangles yes. into the climax of the story. Yes. And you can't have the climax of that book without the romantic no. subplot. And for those listeners who haven't necessarily seen it and want to know what we're banging on about, um, they <laughs> they basically make a pact to take poisonous berries so that no, nobody wins. And in making that decision together, which they wouldn't have done if they weren't in love, um, they then win because uh, President Snow refuses to not have a winner. And so I think that is just masterfully woven um, and a really great example of how you can make one subplot completely contingent on the ending. And I think that's what gives it such a nice, um, what's the word, like like that holistic you know, full circle yes. feeling. Yes, so, everything yeah. comes together, yeah. Yeah, 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 great example. Okay, let's move on and talk about the senses, something that I love um, in writing. Yes. So what's the link between the senses and then intimacy? And do you have any advice for writers listening who would like to improve their writing, like using the senses, like in terms of a, a setting tool? Yes, so... In, in romance, the senses are really, really important um, because they show the progression of the relationship. So there's essentially a gradation in the senses from least intimate to most intimate. So the least intimate sense is sight, and then you have sound, smell, touch, and taste, because you have to get closer and closer to the other people to be able to experience uh, the, the other senses after sight, right? Um, there's also a gradation within each sense. So for example, if you touch somebody on the shoulder or on the waist or on their breasts, it's really not the same level of intimacy. And actually readers know about these implicit rules of what is more intimate and what is less intimate because like they are people and they experience like living with other people and being intimate with other people. So they, they know about these rules uh, implicitly, and they know that a relationship usually develops from least intimate to most intimate. 
But if you know about the rule, then you can break it intentionally to create special effects because we're rebels, we break rules. And so the, the most important part uh, to remember about creating special effects uh, is that you really want to make it evident that it's uh, that it's not that it's not uh, that that is not something that should be happening right now in terms of intimacy levels of the two the two characters. Um, and a few examples of doing that is, for example, if the characters already know each other, uh, you can show that by having a. Um, a sense that is more intimate being used on their first meeting on page for the characters to see. You're actually doing that. I don't know if you if you did that consciously or not in the in the book, the uh, a game of hurts and heights. That's very hard to pronounce for like non English speakers. By the way, <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> um, you're doing that in that book because in the first scene, Scarlet uh, sees Queen, and then Queen looks back at Scarlet, and the sensation that Scarlet has is touch. She feels her skin heating up. She feels like ripples on her skin. So all of that indicates that those two already know each other. Even if you didn't have the internal monologue saying so, the reader would pick up on it because of the, of the use of a more intimate sense. Um, another example would be smell in fated myth stories. It's used a lot, especially in werewolf stories, where people will sometimes smell each other before they even see each other. That's how they, they know uh, vampires too. Vampires love the okay. smell of people. They like get feral for it. I love that you mentioned werewolves. I have never consciously like thought about that, but as soon as you said it, I was like, oh my god, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, it's used a lot. Um, and another device that you can use that I, that is really nice is if some kind of intimacy is harder for one of the characters or forbidden by one of the characters. So the typical example of that is the like billionaire uh, boss who is like saying like, I can have sex with you, but I'm not going to kiss you. You're basically, what you're doing is that you're essentially reverting uh, the expectations of the reader, which is now sex is on a lower level of intimacy than kissing. And so you're essentially telling the reader the most uh, intimate act is kissing and it will come by the end of the book to show that the, the characters have changed and they've grown closer. Um, so kissing is a very typical example. It's probably a bit overdone in billionaire romance, to be honest. But you can use that for any kind of intimacy. Maybe some, one of your characters doesn't like somebody touching their hair. Um, maybe they don't like um, people looking at them. So maybe they have sex, but in the dark. So all of these, um, as, as long as you're telling the reader early on that this is the thing that the character doesn't want to do, is not prepared to do, then you're setting yourself up for like a very nice payoff by the end of the book when they eventually do. Oh, I think this is brilliant. I, uh, I'm i already like need to go away and write some notes about ideas and things that I've got for the next series. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so let's talk about the fact that romance does have a progression in the novel. How yes. can we show the increasing romantic connection like as the plot continues, as we get closer and closer to, you know, the the climax of the story? So for for this particular question, I there's a, an article by Jamie Gold, and I think she wrote it after listening to some kind of workshop by Malcolm Hall. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the name right, but um, and this uh, relies on identity versus essence. So the idea is that um, 
both of your characters have an identity that they, someone who they think they should be or who they present to the world. And then they have an essence, which is either who they really are beneath the mask or like the person who they need to become uh, in order to grow. Um, and how you increase romantic connection, uh, connection as the romance uh, unfolds is you, you need to have the identities clashing and the essences connecting. And when you do that, you're, the, the plot goes easily because you have a lot of clashes in the identity to begin with. And then you have one of them shows their essence and suddenly they start connecting. And you do more and more of that uh, as the story continues on. Uh, more and more essence is being shown and more and more connection is being created. So you, the, the, the actual way to do that is to, for example, have intimacy uh, go up or love scenes or to share secrets after somebody has shown their essence and to, on the flip side, have more conflict and tension in the relationship when they've retreated into their identity. Um, yeah, I love that. I think I was funny enough. I was having a conversation. I can't even remember who with the other day. I it wasn't on a podcast either. And we were talking about how the best relationships are those where even on the surface, if if the two people are very, very different, their inner values are the things that match. And so and funny enough, we were, oh, I, I remember now we were on holiday and uh, we were talking about the fact that on the surface level, Chloe and I are very, very different. And like people can't mm -hmm. really understand like how we're together. Like we're both and also like we have similarities, but that should in theory clash. Like we're both very dominant. Mm -hmm. We're both very commanding women. Like we both are like sort mm -hmm. of alpha and both eights on the Enneagram mm -hmm. and in theory like that shouldn't necessarily work but it does because like our morals and our inner values are like exactly the same like we both go through life in the same way we both like value the same amount of kindness the, the same loyalty the same like all of those things and so mm -hmm. I think that is such mm -hmm. a good bit of advice to look at both the surface of characters and how you can create kind of that on-page conflict but also mm -hmm. the inner heart of who those characters are and the fact mm -hmm. that they do align so I think that's a great bit of advice okay let's let's kind of go back to settings and talk about objects because that was one of the things that you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier on so talk to me about objects yes. and romantic subplots so objects are, are very good for like um for many many things in in romance one of them is mood so setting the mood, it's very easy to do with objects. So let me give you an example. Imagine a white bed, white sheets and red petals on the bed. So this gives up a romantic vibe, right? But then if I tell you that on the bedpost, there are handcuffs and there's a blindfold on the bedside table, suddenly the moods turn more sexy. And so objects are really, really evocative and you can use just a few of them, sprinkling them into your scene and you have the mood set like, right in very few words. Um, They're also very good for characterization. Um, so if your objects are, has some kind of special meaning for your character, or if they show an aspect of their personality that you wouldn't, wouldn't be as easily shown otherwise, um, they can also, um, you can also have an object that like doesn't fit its owner. And so it forces the other character to view them in a different way. Um, like, for example, the 18 game is a good example of that. So Joshua, oh, like once a week, wears very bright blue shirts, which do not really fit 
his usual color palette and his personality. Um, and Lucy basically wonders about that a big part of the book. And she knows it's his favorite color, but she doesn't know why. And then she realizes at the end of the book, when she goes into his bedroom, that he also has a wall painted this color. And he tells her that the reason this is a uh, big spoiler, big spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> the, the reason this is his favorite color is because it's the color of his, uh, her eyes. And so uh, oh, it basically tells her that like he's been obsessed with her yeah. and he loves her. Oh, so, I mean, yeah, it is spectacular. It. Yeah, that I forgot all about that. And as soon as you said it, I was like, oh my God, the payoff was spectacular. No wonder that book did so well. Oh, I love that example. Um, Okay, so I this is something you can help me with because I struggle with this mm-hmm. quite a lot. What I find easy is to do objects connected to the to the setting but what I find harder uh-huh. is objects connected to the character so uh-huh. I don't know whether or not you've got any tips to like help me brainstorm so one of the things that I um so for example in Hearts and Heist Quinn has her journal mm-hmm. um Scarlett has her blades um obviously mm-hmm. there's the map um and there's you know there's a coin there's a coin. Oh, yes, exactly. Oh, my God. And I actually have that coin as well. I found the coin. I brought the coin before I even wrote the book. And um, yeah, how could I forget the coin? I, I knew there was something. The coin as well. And I love that. And there was less of that in book two. And I really want to bring that back uh-huh. into book three. But I've been struggling because Scarlett just kind of poofed out of, I don't know, she was given to uh-huh. me by the muse gods. Um, and she came carrying the coin. So, you know, it it's it it that just happened how can I brainstorm new objects for my romantic characters in in book three because I would love to have something else but I want it like you said to have some kind Mm -hmm. of impact or like deeper meaning rather than it just being Mm -hmm. an object so like yeah any tips for like brainstorming that kind of thing well I, I would look very close at your character do they have specific quirks that uh, could be associated with an object or do they have uh, a specific backstory something that could hold more meaning because of their backstory that could like essentially show what happened to the reader without telling them uh, right away um yeah okay yeah the... that's a good idea i think you've already given me a bit of a an idea the backstory in particular yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll have a. I'll have a think about that. It's really tricky because you you don't want to just pick something random, or you can, but then you have to weave it in and make it make meaning. Yeah. And so it's that difficult yeah. thing. Like, um, yeah. I, I don't know. It was strange because both Quinn and Scarlett um just came with the objects. They that that they just appeared yes. like that. Whereas you know, like for this last book, they haven't really appeared with a thing. And and I'm really trying to find that thing because it does deepen the characterization, like you say. So mm-hmm. mm. um, also maybe look at the at the relationship. So the, the reason why Queen is attached to her journal, I, it seems, is because uh, it's also a, a means to communicate with her brother. So like relationships with other people can also like have make objects have more meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to go and intellect on that. I think I've got some ideas already. Let's talk about weather. Cause that was one of the other elements that you mentioned um, in setting. So how can we use weather to like further our romantic subplots? 
So, well, weather, first of all, can be used again for mood because it's inherently moody, it's light, it's dark. So that's one way is that you can use it uh, to like sprinkle mood into your scenes. Um, but the very, very important fact about weather is that it can highlight or contrast emotions of the characters. So the, the example that we've all seen uh, in one movie or another in terms of highlighting emotions is it's the oldest lost moment, the dark night of the soul, and suddenly the sky opens up and it's pouring on the poor character. So this is the like the typical example of highlighting emotions. Now, the flip side of that is contrasting. So if the character is at their worst moment and the skies are completely bright blue and everybody else around is cheery, it makes them feel even worse because they are alone in their distress, right? So a very, very good example of using weather actually in terms of uh, emo emotions and also in terms of plot is uh, Lord Hall Takes a Bride by Vivian Lauret. So in that book, rain is like a really inherent part of the plot. Um, the, there's a storm coming in basically that like forbids one of the character from leaving on a boat and forces the two main characters together repeatedly over the course of like a few days. Uh, and I'm already it, laughing. It happens so I often. love it. <laughs> yes. And it happens so often that the, the hero comes to associate bad weather and rain <laughs> with the happy moments that he had with the heroine. <laughs> And then when the darkest moment arrives and it's the all is lost and he thinks he's lost her forever, the sun is bright and it also means that he can go on his boat and everything is done and he doesn't even have the, the weather to like keep a part of her with him. Oh my so God. it really packs a, a very big emotional punch. That is fucking genius. Like talk yes. about quirky way of incorporating weather that is unfucking believable what i think i need to hear the name of that book again uh lord hall takes a bride by vivian lord it's historical I'm... romance but it's like not it's not too historical it's fine it's fine uh and also just in general they are like yeah okay you don't need to read that book in particular like read any kind of storm like a snowstorm coming and they are together in a small like in a small like Swiss chalet because like the 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 snow is raging outside. That like all of these books hinge on the same thing, which is weather used for false proximity. Like, yeah, Christmas Christmas stories are a great example of that because yes. snowstorms yes. like lock everybody in. Yes. Um, oh, I knew as soon as I asked that I was going to regret it, and you started to say the word Lord, I was like, fuck, it's historical fiction. <laughs> oh, damn it. Oh, okay. But Vivian, Vivian Lauret is easy to read. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in what ways can a romance subplot like contribute to character development and growth? So for that, I think I'm going to go back to what we discussed before, uh, identity versus essence. So um, if you've read like Kame Weiland's uh, book on character arcs, you know that the character arcs basically hinges on the lie that the characters believe versus the truth that they have to accept to, to learn and grow. Uh, and identity versus essence is just a, like just a, like another way, another angle to look at this. Um, it's the identity that they that they present to the world versus the the essence that they that they have to grow into to be able to find love and also just develop as a person. Um, and so 
when you have a romantic subplot and you use this identity clashing versus uh, essence uh, connecting um, thing that we discussed before, when you use that, you essentially have built-in character growth because the characters have to move towards their essence, which is a better versions of themselves, if they want to be with the other person. And at some point in the book, they will want that. So they, they have to grow and develop in order for the, the relationship to, to, to work. Uh, and that's a, so that's a very good way to like see that romance and character arcs are actually linked very closely. Absolutely. Like I love stories where all of the elements are connected like that bloody historical example that you just said with the weather. <laughs> I swear you lot are all doing this just to swipe me, trying to get convince me to fall in love with historical fiction. <laughs> Okay, any final tips or tricks, you know, um, to do with settings and romance to kind of help listeners? Yeah, so my my main tip is that setting is not just a backdrop. So you have to use it strategically to further the romance storyline. And the easiest way to do that is to use the secret sauce, which is uh, first proximity. And this first proximity will lead to emotional impact, conflict, tension, and character growth. And all of those ingredients are really needed for a, a romance to be emotionally satisfying to the reader. So when, when you do that and strategically you think about your, your choices, you will end up with something that is emotionally satisfying. Amazing. Well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Well, um, to be honest, uh, so I already said a few rebellions on the, on the podcast at some point. Um, but also what I'm doing right now feels pretty rebellious because like, so there were basically two main parts two main paths for me uh continue in academia which i wasn't really like happy with because it's it put very big strains on my relationships with my partner my family and those are very important to me and i didn't see enough of those people when i was uh, doing my phd so it, it, it didn't really fit me and then the second path was industry which like with my belief very high sometimes uh, like feels very wrong <laughs> um and the, the things I really want the most out of a career is like helping people on a daily basis and the freedom to learn and grow. And so I was like, I, I can have that if I'm like helping writers and if I'm helping PhD students with workshops. So it just, it seemed to fit my strength and what I wanted out of my career. And so like, it, it seemed like a good idea to try, like I'm, not financially by, viable by any means right now, but like I'm, I'm only at the beginning of this journey, and I, like I, I don't know if it will work out. Maybe not, but at least I'm trying, and I'm, I'm happy. So I am a firm believer that if you have found joy, that it is only a matter of time before you find a way to make it work. Like on the financial side, it it will come to fruition, and you know I think there's so much credit to you because you had gone a very long way down an academic path and once 
you know, we have taken these steps on a path that far down the path. It it takes a very brave person to step off of that path and go, no, I choose joy. So I just think that is a wonderful rebellion and credit to you as well. And your kind of grit and resilience that you are like stepping into the joy and you and I just have all faith that you will find a way to make it work because it's obviously who you're meant to be and the and the path that you're meant to go down. So yeah, I absolutely love that rebellion. Okay, tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books, your services, like anything else that you would like to add. So my corner of the internet is on uh, lovingstoryedit.com. Um, you will find like all of the descriptions about who I am, what are my services and um I will be putting up a newsletter sign up soon with a workbook that talks all about what we discussed today. So settings and romance. So if you want to grab that, uh, go to the website. I also have a YouTube channel. There's no video right now. I don't know if there will be by the time this airs, but my intention is to uh, start um, doing YouTube very soon. Um, and my focus for all of my services and social media and everything is relationship driven fiction. So to me, relationship-driven fiction is a subcategory of character-driven fiction and it encompasses romance, romance fiction, chiclet, LGBTQ AI plus fiction also. Uh, and so if you're a writer writing any of those, uh, please come and uh, contact me. I would really love to help you. Uh, I have editing services. I do full edits where I analyze character, plot, settings, your character arc, your pacing, like all of it. I basically write a small book about your book is what I deliver with a full <laughs> edit. Um, I also have romantic audits. If you just want your romantic storyline checked for like, how does it evolve? Like, is it, um, is it coherent? Um, is it satisfying emotionally? Uh, and of course, if you're still writing, I also have coaching uh, spaces and I would really, really love to be your cheerleader and the like one person that you turn to for your writing. Ah, oh, I love it. Amazing. And I really can tell that you do mean that as well. It's written all over your face. I love how happy you are about it. Um, okay, well, I will make sure that all of those links go in the show notes and we can make sure this episode goes out when the workbook is is on there as well. So everybody will be able to go and download that too. Thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a big thank you to all of the show's patrons and all of the show's listeners. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visit visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Emma Rose, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. This week, we have returning guest AK Mulford and their friend and comrade in TikTok fuckery, <laughs> for want of a better word, Anne Kemp. And we are going to be talking all about whether or not TikTok is still worth it. Is it worth it in 2023? Can you still break out? Can you still earn money and sell books on TikTok? So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.